Hi, this is Paul. A couple of Fridays ago, I held a conversation between Kale Zeldin and Larry Chap about blessing irregular couples in irregular situations and couples of same-sex marriage in the Roman Catholic Church. I got a couple of questions from some people about, well, why didn't you have a progressive Roman Catholic person on the podcast? Well, kind of the first answer is, Kale and Father Eric are sort of, are two of my sort of go-to quick people that I can bring onto a live stream and uh, lifelong Catholics and can speak knowledgeably about the situation of the church. Uh, people, many people had asked that. I talked to Larry Chap at some point, and so I asked Kale if, if Larry could come on, and Larry could, and so, and I, I suspected that we would mostly have a conservative perspective. The second reason, and so, but I, I just was looking for orientation and to learn some new things about it. But the second reason was that I tended to suspect that any progressive Roman Catholic was going to sound like a progressive Christian Reformed person or a progressive uh, Reformed Church of American person or a mainline person or an atheist person or a spiritual but not religious person. They would all have exactly the same arguments why the Roman Catholic Church should embrace same-sex unions or same-sex marriage. With Malcolm Collins on Modern Wisdom, Chris Williamson's podcast, I remember him saying something that when I heard him say it, and actually I'd heard him say it on his own channel, in other words, and with a slightly different context, I began to get a sense of this urban monoculture. And that's a very complex thing, but when it comes to this fight over same-sex marriage, it's kind of the same thing. And you would, with just about any theological disagreement, let's say, over how many things that if, you know, how many theological disagreements there would be, let's say, between Protestants and Catholics or Orthodox and Protestant Catholics and Christians and non-Christians and Muslims and Christians and Jews and spiritual but religious and all of these things. When it came down to this issue, all of the progressive Catholics look like the main line, look like, they, they all sort of look alike. All of their arguments are the same. And again, I'm not weighing in on the arguments. There, I think there are some powerful arguments, but it's a complex question. Now, I think the question works a little bit differently in the different churches, but what's interesting is that all of these religious differences sort of wash away. And this is the point that Malcolm Collins makes in this video that is erasing all of the genuine diversity in our society, uh, one of its core messages is negative utilitarianism. That, 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 uh, and I had never heard that term before, negative utilitarianism. The, the, the core evil thing in the world is human suffering and that human happiness just doesn't really matter or. And there it is right there. And if you might remember that a couple of days ago, I did this long video on Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson. Every time I listen to Sam Harris, Every time I listen to arguments within the church, mostly from sort of this progressive point of view, suffering is equated with evil, okay? Negative utilitarianism. It's like, oh, well, I didn't know it had a name, but there it is. And well, let's let him finish. And I put this on my Vanderclips channel just because it's easy for me to find there. It is largely outweighed by human suffering and therefore it's better than the diversity in our society. Uh, one of its core messages is negative utilitarianism. That 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 uh, the, the the core evil thing in the world is human suffering, and that human happiness just doesn't really matter, or it is largely outweighed by human suffering, and therefore it's better if humans don't exist. And that's the end goal for the urban monoculture, I think, for a lot of people.
What do you mean when you say urban monoculture? Well, okay, so this sort of gets down to like uh, my personal politics to some extent, but I think that if you look at society right now, it's largely div becoming divided into two factions and there has been a major political shift around what conservative and progressive means. Um, the progressive is the party of this urban monoculture, which is a single sort of cultural group or virus that infects other cultural institutions and erases whatever makes them unique and aligns all of their goals. So if I talk with a progressive Muslim or a progressive Jew or a progressive Catholic, um, or a progressive Unitarian Universalist, and I scratch beneath the surface, often their morals, their views on gender, their views on what future they want for the world are all very, very similar. If I look at conservatives from each of those factions, their worldviews are very different. And what the conservative party seems optimizing around, so where the liberal party is optimized around the goals of this monoculture, so spreading the monoculture and reducing in the moment human suffering, that's why they promote things like haze, you know, like, don't tell somebody that it's unhealthy to be fat because that could hurt their feelings in the moment, even though, it, like, obviously it's bad for them in the long term. But um, the conservative movements all have in, in very distinct uh, cultural histories, which they are trying to preserve. And that is often, uh, if I look at the conservative movement today, it's an alliance of these older traditions and newer but deviant and distinct traditions um, that are trying to maintain cultural fidelity and exist a 100 200 years from now. Um, and so when I talk about the monoculture, that's what I'm talking about. This thing that wants to, when my kids go to school, say, this is what correct morality is. This is the way you should see the world. And if your parents are telling you anything else, they're deplorable and wrong. Now, this focus on suffering and especially temporary suffering is, is really key in this. Again, I've told the story a few times. I get on, I'm suddenly on YouTube, I'm having conversations with people and, and let's say the fight within, um, the fight, there's a long, long conversation within Christianity about uh, divine judgment, hell. And I keep hearing people call it eternal conscious torment. And it's like, I, I never heard it called that before. But that framing of it is clearly from our culture. I mean, you can read stories of hell in the New Testament from Jesus, outer darkness, gnashing of teeth, things of this nature, eternal conscious torment. It's just interesting how it is framed in that way. And and he also, you know, he also makes the point that Preserve. it's, you know, it, it's framed in terms of a very temporary thing. So Malcolm Collins makes the point that just, you know, I don't want you to feel bad about your body image right now. And so basically we as a culture are going to agree to affirm you in something which, at least by most medical standards, I mean, when I, when, when I go to my doctor and I step on the scale, my doctor doesn't sit there and wring his hands about, I really don't want to hurt Paul's feelings by, by telling him that he could stand to lose a few pounds. My doctor has never done that. My doctor has never felt that. I, I in fact, remember, um, probably didn't even weigh then what I weigh now. I was back on home service, saw one missionary doctor, and I'm laying on the table because, you know, you get back and the mission has, you see the missionary doctor because the mission can save money because it's self-insured, yada, yada, yada. And I'm laying on the table and the doctor looks down at me and said, did you ever consider yourself to be obese? And I thought, 
Why, no, I hadn't. But, you know, he certainly didn't care about my feelings and, you know, my present doctor too. He's looking out for my future health and saying, you know, carrying all this weight, well, you know, you're probably better off if you, if you lose those pounds. But, well, here's the thing. So my doctor is thinking about my long-term welfare by giving me a short-term, some short-term discomfort. It just doesn't play within the confines of, of reality. Yeah. Right? And actually, that's one of the things that I think is so cruel about so much of the sort of discourse around trans. Like, there's this line, actually, there's this great, um, there's a writer called Andrew Longchu, who's who is trans and who disagrees with me on absolutely everything, but I would say he's a great writer, right? <laughs> really, really good prose. And Chu has this line, when you are trans, you become permanently dependent on the kindness of strangers in the sense that basically no one passes. It's really hard to pass convincingly, particularly if you transition as an adult. It'll always be kind of physically obvious that you're not actually mm. a native female. What you depend on is people playing along every single time, every social interaction for the rest of your life so as not to feel dysphoria and sometimes people won't do that little children aren't going to do that or like some elderly person with alzheimer's isn't going to do that you know people aren't always going to cotton on that they're supposed to play along and so it means you have this incredibly fragile yeah it's a social minefield it's terrible yeah and what you're basically and, and and that's what's being inflicted on people when they're encouraged to go through irreversible surgeries living their entire life dependent on the kindness of strangers for for like to avoid complete psychological dissolution Douglas. Living your entire life depending on the kindness of strangers, especially if you have sort of an Augustinian anthropology about, well, kindness of strangers, it's going to fail. Part, part of what's really clever about Malcolm in this is that he, he frames it as diversity, which is, of course, this high, high value in the progressive mindset and basically says, yeah, you're, you're, you're basically destroying diversity of some kinds and many people have made this comment you're devouring you're destroying some kinds of diversity while trying to basically privilege a certain number of select diversities but there's going to be real problems with that now his main point is about the diversity of these different theological and cultural traditions and we we should be able to recognize that many diversity has its place it's actually valuable for the human race to have a variety of cultures and traditions amongst it because i i made this point in in the live chat today that it's it's sort of like keeping it's sort of like in north america you have all of this agricultural seed being produced by major corporations and it's actually kind of a major problem because these seeds are genetically engineered. These genetically engineered seeds are owned by particular corporations. And you have questions about, well, what about what about sort of the original seed types that came up organically throughout history? And so there are these seed banks and the, these seed banks that are attempting to preserve historical plants and food producing plants so that you know, not all the seeds in that sense sort of get locked down behind corporate um, corporate firewalls. Well, if you think about that with respect to people, 
the diversity among people is super helpful in terms of keeping space for new ideas. Now, now one of the things that the Christian Reformed Church is facing in all of this is, of course, the fight over same-sex marriage. And over the last two synods, it's abundantly clear that the conservative position or the traditional position has won in the Christian Reformed Church. And this year, we're going to have a conversation about, well, what does that mean for the other side? To what degree is their tolerance? Now, the Christian Reformed Church is a confessional church, which means that in order to belong to the Christian Reformed Church, you have to subscribe to these certain documents and certain beliefs. Now, in this little corner of the internet, we are well aware of sort of separating out propositional truth from the other three Ps. One of the things that I had long noted is that the confessional game within a church is actually far more complex than the confessional infrastructure tends to relate. And, and this is very true in the Christian Reformed Church. The Christian Reformed Church used to be a denomination that had less, probably had less diversity theologically than it has now. As Dutch immigration ended, the last wave came after the Second World War, mostly to Canada and California. As Dutch immigration ended, assimilation to the other varieties of Christianity within North America across the theological spectrum continued. The Christian Reformed Church, after the baby boom, tried to survive by reaching out and doing mission work in North America. And what that tended to do was bring in, not only do say evangelism, but evangelism is never sort of a blank slate. You've got a person who's not a Christian and now they are a Christian and now suddenly they believe everything that everyone in the Christian Reformed Church believes. Often what you had is you activated people who sort of fell away from other theological traditions and joined the Christian Reformed Church. It also meant that the Christian Reformed Church increasingly became sort of either say 30% of the church became sort of mainline-ish, and let's say 70% of the church became sort of evangelical-ish, and maybe with some reformed accent. So for 20, 30, 40 years, you'll hear all of this talk in the Christian Reformed Church about speaking with a reformed accent, yada, yada, yada. And so really what's been happening in the Christian Reformed Church is an assimilation process. But the mainline church, which sort of had supremacy in the academic realm, and in cultural realms, but has been in decline, um, you you see you see influence in the Christian Reformed Church in terms of assimilation to the mainline, mostly in let's say the elite structures, the educated structures. The vast majority of the Christian Reformed Church continues to grow much more in terms of broader, more broadly evangelical faith, and. Even though within the Christian Reformed Church, you're still going to have elements of the church that, let's call them the confessionalists, that are pay a lot of attention to, let's say, the Reformed distinctives, the Belgic Confession. And this group very much got bolstered by the Young, Restless, and Reformed movement. And actually, many of the some of the leaders in the confessional side of the Christian Reformed Church were either reinvigorated by, let's say, influence from Tim Keller or John Piper, or people actually came into the Christian Reformed Church from those camps and are now part of the Christian Reformed Church and influencing it in that way. So 
you see this process going on. And now we're going to have a talk about confessionality. And the real fight is over. Well, there was a, um, a gravamen which expressed confessional difficulty, which had been used sort of as, okay, I, I believe this, 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 and this, but not this one here. So as long as I declare this, not this one here, then I'm good in terms of my subscription with the Christian Reformed Church, and that's it. Now, I think the Abide Camp has made a very strong case that this historically has not been the assumption within the Christian Reformed Church. It was sort of written up that way, and it's been interpreted that way, which now presents some in the Christian Reformed Church that are out of out of confessional status because of the church's decisions with respect to same-sex marriage, finding uh, the church holding um, a traditional view of marriage as part of its subscription, thus putting a whole bunch of people in hot water in terms of subscription. Now, it's also important to remember to mention that for a very long time now in the Christian Reformed Church, the subscriptional machinery has been nodded to, but not terribly enforced. And by that I mean that the Christian Reformed Church has been getting increasingly more lax with respect to whole ranges of things as part of its assimilation into both a mainline world, but the majority within a conservative evangelical world. And so that's what's been happening in the church. But while that has been happening, far deeper things have also been going on in terms of the loss of generations to the Christian Reformed Church. Now, again, some have assimilated into other branches of the church. Some have assimilated in, let's say, some more rigorous Reformed groups. The Young, Restless, and Reform movement had their emphasis um, some have just kind of become evangelical, but many have sort of gone into that urban monoculture. And, and that then creates a very interesting dynamic for the Christian Reformed progressives, because on one hand, they find themselves numerically in a real problem in the Christian Reformed church. But if you say followed, and this was, um, hmm, let's say, I think I, I think I clipped it. Eerie. Rita Klein-Gelting, classes Quinty. I have a question for the majority committee, and um, I, I, I think I know the answer. Actually, four questions, but I know the answer, but because otherwise I wouldn't have signed the minority report. If this passes, can someone who is unsure of what God expects of LGBTQ people's can that unsure person become a member of the CRC? Question two, can someone who is unsure become an office bearer in the Christian Reformed Church, in our churches? Number three, can someone who is unsure sign a gravamen? Is that okay? I've been a member of the Christian Reformed Church all my life, as, as my husband and our parents, and my four sons, my four boys, who are, Karen knows they're men, and their wives are all following Jesus and are members of the Christian Reformed Church. My 12 grandchildren are members of the Christian Reformed Church. 
if my four sons and their wives fall into this category of unsure, can the CRC still be their home? You may answer the question. Church now all grown up in order. And that's a powerful question. And it has to do with, well, what does subscription look like? because these propositional beliefs are of a certain nature. And I'm not saying these are incidental. I'm not saying this isn't a framework that can be used, but it is certainly not a framework that stands alone. So how do you navigate this? Now I wanna play another clip from Malcolm and Simone, where Malcolm talks a little bit about his own journey and talks about something that I've known for a very long time. It's part of the reason that I, you know, really wanted to get something like estuary going, and I'm glad it's going. And sometimes when I talk to Christian Reformed ministers about estuary, I don't just talk about having open conversations with people outside the Christian Reformed Church. I talk about including people within the church because what's happening is that many of the old ways of perpetuating culture, forming both propositional beliefs and behaviors have been going away. And it has changed quite dramatically. If you're looking at like transference of, let's say, Christian values intergenerationally, I know some conservatives, I tell them this and they're like, oh, my kids know not to to you know do that or they'll be you know punished in some way right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it's like well what you're telling me is if they didn't still believe they wouldn't tell you right because mm -hmm. you just told me you you were going to punish them and and that's a very difficult way in this world today historically that worked you could punish people into following a faith when they had nowhere else to turn the problem is, is that in our current society, it's very easy to leave your parents or leave your parents' tradition once you're of age. And this, I am going to force them with punishment. This is what happened, I think, with Ayla, for example, right? Her father, Calvinist tradition, you know, similar to ours. Now, that goes by fast, but it's helpful for those who are, say, not familiar with the internet to understand that Ayla gained a lot of fame by being by doing only fans doing prostitution becoming a porn star and her father was a reformed was is a reformed a public reformed apologist someone who argues for the faith you know this is the same problem as as ravi zechariah it's that well if if christians ideas around sexuality are are so good why can't they themselves live it? And that's a powerful argument. The difficulty is, of course, that traditional Christian values around sexuality have long been known to be strenuous and um, aspirational. That doesn't mean, I, I went back and forth with Larry Chapp about this a little bit, but I didn't press the issue. That doesn't mean that people are unable to not commit adultery. It does mean that many people struggle. They might not struggle with it through their whole life, but they will. They might struggle with it through different portions of their life. But so I wanted to make that so that people would understand it. But that's not the the main point that I'm making with this clip. 
society, it's very easy to leave your parents or leave your parents' tradition once you're of age. And this, I am going to force them with punishment. This is what happened, I think, with Ayla, for example, right? Her father, Calvinist tradition, you know, similar to ours, tried to get her to follow the tradition with punishment. And that just backfired spectacularly like an atomic bomb in his face. And I think it's a very, very bad strategy in today's environment. Yeah. Second strategy. I now, it's helpful to know, at least for the application of the Christian Reformed Church, this is how the Christian Reformed Church functioned. There was huge communal pressure to enforce not only, let's say, propositional beliefs, but behavioral expectations on people, many of them with respect to sex. Um, now, did they always work? No, because not everybody's watching, but cohabitation, many of these things. And so those walls are gone. Those walls are down in many places, not in all places. There's still places in the Christian Reformed Church where the community is cohesive enough and enough intact. But what that tends to mean is once people move away, then they can begin to you know, do what they want or express what they really believe. I hear people saying is, or, or that we would have seen historically, is you would have had the community sort of monitor to know when they were falling from their faith, right? Mm -hmm. So a really important thing about intergenerational faith transfer in a historic context is that you as a parent would get feedback if your kid didn't believe your faith, right? Mm -hmm. Like <clears throat> even me, I mean, I was clear from a young age that I did not believe in the traditional Christian religion and my parents, now, I, I do consider myself a Christian, but like a weird Christian, and most of that has been built up since then. When I was in middle school and high school, I was one of those hard atheist type people, you know, caught up in like the new atheist movement and stuff. The new way I always thought they were kind of, you know, pussy ish. I didn't like them, but uh, I, with the atheist movement more generally, right? Hmm. And, and the various offshoots, like the subgenius and stuff like that. Those are the ones who I thought were cool. But it was known, like this was something that was reported to my parents. Now my parents were not Christian either. You know, they had left the Christian faith a long time ago, but it got all the way back to my grandparents who were still of the 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 Christian group within my family, right? Like, mm -hmm. so if you're in Texas or something like this, in middle school, this is stuff that would have been reported to your family. That <laughs> is not happening anymore. No. And well, because there's not these networks of people trying to ensure cultural fidelity, which exist naturally. I mean, actually, they do exist now. They're just on the woke side. If right. Yeah, I was going to say, if anything, teachers are helping it along these days, not reporting it. Well, they I mean, they would report to the family of some the kid said something non woke. They'd say, don't you know that little Jimmy is not of the dominant cultural group? Mm. He said something. Now, in the Christian Reformed Church, this is where it's getting interesting because a lot of the battleground about these things is happening in the educational institutions because there's the expectation that the educational institutions are supposed to maintain, if you're a professor at Calvin College, you have to sign a version of the form of subscription. And of course, when Synod 2022 and 2023 came in with their decisions, suddenly, hmm, how's this going to play? in terms of Calvin College or Calvin University. I keep calling it Calvin College because that's what it was when I was there. So the community power has a lot of power, but we're in the context where we're facing the biggest influence machine 
that the world has ever seen. I'm going to finish playing out this clip and then talk about a couple other things. Thing non woke, he should be punished for this. I hope he's punished at home and not just at school. He said, blah, blah, blah. And this is not an approved fact. So, you know, you are really working with a completely different, not an incrementally different, not a linearly different world than, than existed when you were growing up. It is completely structurally different. And if you try to go into it with, you know, slightly more padding around you or something like that, you are going to be, or slightly more padding around the next generation, they're going to be fucked. You know, this requires really intentional structuring and rebuilding. And there's different ways you can do that. I mean, this is why we wrote the Pragmatist Guide to Crafting Religion. This is why we recorded the audiobook for it, everything like that. We did all of this. And just, you know, if anybody wants it, we sell it for like 99 cents or $2 or something. Like all of the money goes to charity. Like, and the charity goes to trying to create a school system to compete with a public school system, which I think most of the people who would want the book would find compelling. Now, again, this is what the Christian Reformed Church has been doing for a very long time. This, this set up in the Christian Reformed Church a lot of the dynamics that we did see at Synod because the progressives in the Christian Reformed Church had a really hard time sort of calibrating their position. And I mentioned this in previous videos, that when they read the news, when they look at TV, when when everything is going on, they think, surely, surely we must be winning, and given more time, we will win. Because the most powerful engine, influence engine, is behind their backs. Grim Grizz on his channel often talks about the normalization of pornography, and he keeps pointing to friends. And I never watched the show Friends much at all. I didn't really know much about it. And but then someone, after I had made that comment, made this point that here's an article by a, a conservative group that basically makes basically makes the same thing. TV sitcoms tell stories, stories of storytellers. The cast and crew of Friends wanted to push the envelope, knowing that TV was frequently a feedback loop, not only reflects culture, but also drives shapes and informs it. Friends was the second story on TV to depict the same-sex wedding, decades before Obergefell and a year before Ellen DeGeneres famously came out. Ross Geller's wife leaves him for a woman and marries her. He walks her down the aisle, and after her bigoted and homophobic father declines to do so. NBC was braced for a backlash when the episode aired, expecting thousands of angry phone calls. They only got two. Of course, progressive heresy hunters... I've taken aim at friends for the homo homophobia apparently utilized in the process of norm smashing. David Swimmer, Ross Geller, shrugs off the criticism as ridiculous. The truth is that the show was groundbreaking in its time for the way that it handled so casually sex-protected sex, gay marriage, and relationships. The pilot of the show was was my character's wife left for a woman, and there was a gay gay wedding, and my ex and her wife that I attended. Indeed, one, one writer stated that the show channeled the warm hangout vibe through 10 seasons that revolved around six friends and their everyday lives, introduced me to lesbianism, surrogacy, and foosball. As McGuire puts it, Friends was the entire, friends was the entire sex, sexual revolution tied up in one made-for-TV package and wrapped in a warm hangout vibes. Most people were too busy laughing to notice, as with many sitcoms, people who normally oppose such behaviors unfolding on screen found themselves rooted for illicit hookups, divorce, and laughing at predatory sexual behavior. Joey, she's needy, she's vulnerable, I'm thinking cha-ching. 
And when religious people consume the same entertainment as everybody else, it creates a sort of moral schizophrenia, laughing along with everyone from porn binges to promiscuity. Um, one day, while attending church to hear the, pre the pastor explain how such things are so wicked, God himself had to be crucified to save people from these sins. Um, um, most mainstream TV shows offered people the opportunity to entertain themselves by laughing at sin, although few realized it or saw it that way. Friends did much to normalize watching pornography as part of the everyday lives of young adults. This was before digital pornography became ubiquitous of American life. There was an episode featuring Chandler and Joey stumbling across a free porn channel and watching porn for days. Phoebe's sister was a porn star. Porn is a punchline, not sexual poison. For young people taking their cues from their famous TV shows, the message was simple. Normal people watch pornography. It's no big deal. Women don't care about it. It's just part of being an adult. Um, feel free to watch porn just like your friends. Now, also on, I, I caught you, let's finish the sentence. So apparently there's this chancellor at the University of Wisconsin who is being fired, not because he watched pornography, but because he made pornography with his wife. And there's likely going to be a big debate about this, but you know he, so that then, enters the question, well, what are the expectations of someone, let's say, in a university position, in a secular university, in terms of his behavior? And it's going to be a very interesting thing to watch because, again, you have this question of, well, how does this stuff shake out? Now, it's important for communities to figure out what is essential to the cultural and formation and beliefs of the community. And so any community that doesn't have boundaries and figure out what those boundaries and figure out how those boundaries are enforced very quickly will not be a community. And this is happening in a context where, in many respects, lots of things are changing and being disrupted because of technological change, et cetera, et cetera. How is this going to go? As we get near Synod 2024, the Christian Forum Church is going to have to figure out, okay, how in fact does it maintain its boundaries, enforce its boundaries? The easy thing to do will sort of be to try to tighten along propositional lines and just say, well, here's the gate, you're in or you're out. I don't think that's sufficient for anything. You can do that, but what you'll tend to get is people sort of taking silent gravamens, which is, okay, well, they don't, they, they believe differently, but they're not going to say anything, sort of what Malcolm was talking about, because it gets enforced. And when then what you don't enforce, what obviously actually you need is, is a program of formation. That's, of course, not a new thing to say. The difficulty is going to be, okay, how, in effect, does that community facilitate that formation? And let's say you have people who disagree on this particular issue. Just addressing this issue alone really doesn't do much because part of the issue with the questions of, let's say, traditional marriage, traditional sexuality, is that there are many, many other issues down the line. 
And these issues are, there are deeper questions tied to these issues. And so the question isn't just figuring out how to get people to answer yes or no in a particular line of questions. The question is helping people to form lives that are in concert with the far larger and deeper values of the community. This isn't a final answer from me. It's something I have to continue to work on. And um, uh, we're getting to the end of December. My time is getting short. So leave a comment. Let me know what you think.